When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we'll tackle your questions on cats and cars, scheduling job interviews, appropriate accommodations for guests, and more. Plus, we have some killer feedback from you. And we'll hear Emily Post's take on younger generations in our postscript. That's all coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning, and we're from the Emily Post Institute. Well, hello. Hello. (laughs) I had an interesting experience last week, and I wasn't sure if it was... It was interesting. The the person that I did this with is from the Midwest, and she was wondering whether the problem we encountered was kind of a, a cultural divide, a regional difference. And I think I'm chalking it up to no, I don't think this is a re- regional difference. I we threw we co-hosted a party and got no RSVPs. I'm so curious. I remember the run up to this party and we haven't had a chance to download yet about it. Yeah, we haven't. How'd it turn out? It was okay. So the actual party was great. The folks that showed up were lovely. They had a wonderful time. My co-host and I put on a good spread. I felt confident as a host. So all of that was really, really good. Check, check, check. But boy, while we're waiting for, for the guests to arrive, you know, everything's in its place. Everything's either chilled or warmed or presented beautifully. I was really happy with all that. She said, what gives? We sent out like 40 invitations and I think I got two responses. I was like, I know it's really, really hard. So just so you know, party throwers out there, hosts out there, etiquette experts have trouble getting people to RSVP too. I was shocked. We sent out actual mailed invitations. We called people and we texted people. And I was floored that even a group text did not result in anyone saying, I can come or I can't come or anything. It was just, it was really kind of, a, it was crazy. I, I, I wish I had a sound effects board because I would do a scratching record. <laughs> what? Hold on a second. <laughs> uh, no RSVPs. No replies few, at all. Very few. No, we got a couple. One person texted in the day of saying she couldn't come. Other people held it and said, you know, I just won't be able to know until that particular day. The thing that we're talking about here is not that people just didn't respond even if you directly asked them. I did the thing where, you know, three or four days before the party when I really wanted that head count, I actually reached out. Hi, so-and-so. Wanted to see if you're coming Thursday night. And that's when I actually got my answers. Um, and it, and some people, you know, I was able to see in passing and we exchanged that information. So technically, 
the communication happened, but it was not someone opening something up in the mail or receiving a text message or a phone call invite and responding promptly at all. And I was really, um, I felt like I have dealt with this numerous times, you know, over the past few years. And so I just kind of say, hey, you do your best, you try and you put on what you can and you hope people show up and, and that's just it. And my co-host was just, it was really noticeable to her, the difference from the last community that she lived in, who really RSVP'd quickly and knew that people were trying to accommodate space and prepare food and things like that. I think she really came from a place where people paid attention to that and understood the difference that it made to know whether 15 people were coming or six. This is really curious to yeah. me that, that you're perceiving it as a, a regional uh, difference so. maybe rather than a generational difference. It's not, oh, bemo- yeah. like the state of my friends these days. It's more maybe the iconoclast Vermont yeah. community doesn't Ages ranged do this. From thir- the youngest invitee was 30, and I, I know a few of the women were in their mid-60s. So big age range to be covering. And the 30-year-old was one of the ones who did RSVP. Well, bravo. I know. Golf I was clap. very impressed. <laughs> um, but it did not diminish the party itself. But in those moments where, you know, you're reflecting on, on how you did and how you went through it and how it went, that was certainly a point where both my co-host and I were like, wow, okay, so good to know. If we do something like this again, you know, we're going to have to really chase down our SVPs. It's such a good reminder that even when you're hitting your marks, that people aren't always going to respond or reply the way that you would hope. And so much of good etiquette is is what you do in the face of that. Exactly. And you know what? We had a great party. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Um, we have a couple difficult questions from our listeners. We do today. I am I am actually, there is one in particular that I think I might be stymied on. It might be one we have to toss out to the audience and see what they say. We've stumped the panel in we advance. Might, we might have we might have in advance stumped the panel, yeah. <laughs> well, let's get to it. Let's do it. To make a good impression, you must know what to do. On each and every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or give us a call at 802-866-0860. Our first question is about the job hunt, and it comes from Amy on Facebook. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I am currently job hunting, and the following has happened enough to make me wonder if this is a trend. I will receive a call to set up an interview, make time in my calendar to do so, only to get an email in the next few days telling me that the position has been filled. While I appreciate that they inform me of this before I come in, it is very frustrating to make time for interviews only to have them canceled. Is there any way I can reply to these companies and let them know that it reflects poorly on them and I don't appreciate having my chain yanked? If there isn't anything, I hope that you will mention this in your business etiquette classes moving forward. Thanks, Amy. Boy, that is a tough position. On the one hand, they're letting her know as soon as possible and not wasting her time by having her come in to do an interview that they've already filled a position for. On the other hand, she's made the time in the schedule, so why not just accommodate it, give give her the practice? I don't know. Would you feel more aggrieved if you found out you were interviewing for a position that 
wasn't available? I don't know what to This think. is exactly the question I was asking myself. Yeah. While I feel the grievance, <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder how much you'd want to allow yourself to feel that grievance for exactly the reason that you just said. Would it be worse if they said, come on over and went through a whole charade interview that, right. that didn't really mean anything? And I, I think you might feel not so good about that either. But would you know? Because you don't know then that that's what's happening. No, but there's something dishonest to it. I think it, well, no, it, it's it, absolutely dishonest. It's just you're not aware of the dishonesty. And and I think that's one of the things that we really stick to, that you don't do that. You don't yeah. necessarily trade in deception just to smooth things over. Yeah. I think that substantively there's that, that that's that's inappropriate. So it sounds like we're coming down on the side that while it's unfortunate, it's better that they let this person know ASAP that the position has been filled I think so. And and but where I do see a potential rudeness on that other side of the equation yeah. is are, are 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 you going too far? Are you scheduling interviews with a thousand applicants to fill two positions and that you know that on average you fill a position after looking at ten applicants? I, I love that Amy's suggestion is if I can't say something back to them, which yes, Amy, I don't think you should. I think that that would actually burn a bridge if you did. Mm -hmm. And if there's any potential of you working at this place in the future, or maybe another position opens up or something, I wouldn't want to suggest that you do that that. But I do think, and Dan, tell me if, if you agree or not, I think that we could suggest to people who are in position of hiring and tasked with hiring that they let somebody know, just so you know, we are seeing other applicants. And if we do decide to hire someone, we will let you know immediately so that your time isn't wasted. And then at least you're kind of like, OK, well, they might fill the position between now and the time I have the it's, it's like you're pre um, what am I looking? It's not pre vetted. It's pre exposed, pre warned. Your open process. There we go. <laughs> no. And it's and you're, you're getting exactly to the advice that, that I was hoping we would get around to, which is that you definitely hold back and and. I was saying maybe someday when you're in a position where you're doing the hiring, Amy, that you hold yourself accountable to a slightly higher standard. And I think that's um, a place where this lesson, I think, is really well learned. It's a transitional moment when someone's looking for a job. And there's a yeah. lot of emotions at play and people are invested in that search. And taking care with people who are in that process is, is something that really matters and affects your reputation as a company. And it, it it's worth thinking about. There are companies that do a type of... Um, analysis that's they, they call it 360 reach and a 360 reach and, huh. and a 360 reach analysis involves assessing people not just based on their supervisors evaluations but also on the people that report to them so mm -hmm. you look at people sort of up and down the food chain in a business and okay. you also look at people who've left a business oh, you ask them why they've left so you might talk to people that were part of an interview process that didn't get a job to see how that process went and I think it's an important way to think about how you evaluate your reputation you want to talk to the people that you're accountable to, but you also want to talk to the people that are accountable to you and the people that you don't feel you're accountable to, because those are the places where there's often an opportunity to really make improvements. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I love all of it. I hope more companies will do the 360 reach type of feedback. I think that sounds... It sounds smart to me. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing you would want and maybe a little tough to take, but it's a good perspective to be able to understand. And Amy, I want to encourage you in your job search that the next one is an interview that gets booked, stays booked, and that you get the job. And it's a job you really want for a company you can feel good about. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. 
From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. This next question is called Cat Car Conundrums. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you so much for this incredibly insightful podcast. I'm a big fan. I moved recently into a townhome along with my preteen son and cats. Each townhome is allotted two parking spots, and they are clearly marked. The neighbor from next door asked me the first time we met if it would be okay if they parked their extra vehicle in my open parking space. I only have one car. I said yes, because honestly, there wouldn't be anyone in the spot 90% of the time, and there is open parking for guests at the end of the building if something came up. My cats are indoor-outdoor cats and like to go out and lay in the warm, grassy areas from time to time, occasionally staying out overnight. They are neutered, but not declawed. Yesterday, the neighbor who was using my parking spot stopped me and asked if there was any way I could keep my cat from sitting on her cars. She made a comment that they were putting the cars up for sale. I did apologize and said that I would research some options online. As she was asking me about this, she was putting a plastic cover over the leaky window of a car that was dented, dinged, and scratched already. I took a second look at all the cars, including the one in my assigned parking location, and none of them are in pristine condition on the inside or out. I have to admit that I'm a little miffed. Perhaps I'm being overly protective of my fur babies, or maybe I'm starting to resent giving her the parking spot. Should I suck it up and begin using some of the tricks I found online around all three of her cars or until one or all disappear? The community is very pet-friendly, and nearly everyone has a dog or cat, including her. So while I'm assuming it's probably my cat on her car, I've honestly never seen him there. Signed, Crazy Cat Lady in Ohio. This is the question I was talking about. I don't know what our listener should do. I really don't. Because on the one hand... I'm like, yeah, I'd be a little annoyed that this person who I'm generously giving an extra car space to 
is complaining about my cat when she, I don't know that she has any proof that it's my cat. I wish, oh, I wish Crazy Cat Lady in Ohio had been able to say, oh, when did you see him up there? Or like in the moment, something like that. But even that kind of sounds jerky, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, couldn't you see if someone was like, hey, I just want you to know I'm trying to sell my car. So if, if we could try to keep your cat off it, that would be great. And someone fires back with, would you actually see him on there? Like that, I get it. That's challenging. That does not smooth. That's not etiquette. And I'm just like, what do you do? What? How do you tell? How do you know? And the gall that these cars are not in good condition, and she's putting up, uh, making these requests. Like, oh, your cat's on my car. It's like, really, really. Really? Uh, Let's talk about all of the sticky etiquette issues that are at play here. We've got pets. We've got neighbors. Car spaces. Shared parking spaces. Things up for sale. All potential trouble areas, as people that listen to this podcast know. I suggest that we start detangling this issue and separate out some of the different issues at play here. I like the visual I just got from that. Help me out. Walk me through it, cuz. Well, I I don't know how far we're going to be able to take the process, but we can give it a shot. We can start out here. I I, want to divorce the question of cats sitting on cars from borrowed or lent parking spaces. I agree. And and I do really appreciate the way our, and I'm not going to call you crazy cat lady... Um, I, I'm going to call the way our conscientious cat owner in Ohio um, identified that she's wondering if maybe she's starting to feel her own resentment over lending out the parking yeah. spot that's part of her condo. And I think that that's a really important emotion to identify and acknowledge. And I agree. I think by acknowledging it, we can let it go. Okay. We can say, you know, I made that deal and it's a fine deal. It's okay. It cost me nothing and it's part of being a good neighbor. And I, I like that she mentions there's spare spots down the street, that there's no real cost to her. Mm-hmm. I would also say that you're not obligated to lend anyone your parking space. Or for any length of time. If you decide that that is your cat relaxation area, <laughs> that is a perfectly good reason. And you don't necessarily need to explain it as such for you to say, you know, I've, I've, it's been fine for me to, to, to let you park your car in my spot, but I'm no longer willing to do that. That's a a really simple boundary setting thing you can do with a neighbor. And I think that level of clarity is really important when you're talking about a privilege that's been granted that you want to take away. Mm -hmm. Um, You could offer the reasons, but you don't necessarily need to get into them either. I wouldn't make the reason the bad feeling about being asked to have the cat not sit on the car. I think that starts to (laughs) re-entangle these issues that we're trying to detangle. if... Cece decides to not allow this person to use the parking space anymore because it's now got an emotional attachment to it and it's it's kind of ugly in her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, we would say just simply let the neighbor know it's been fine up till now, but I'd really like to have my parking spot available to me again. So I'm going to ask that you start parking your third car at the visitors section or the guest section and just leave it at that. You don't have to say anything else. Do you think that the other one's going to just assume it's because we've asked? I mean, do we need to worry about that at all? Or do we just say, no, let her assume away? Because I don't think we're going to do it in this moment Mm -hmm. in reaction to the question about the cat. Yeah. Oh, totally. I think it's okay. And but I would be aware of that if they say, oh, could you keep your cat off my car? And you say, could you keep your car out of my parking spot? (laughs) Those two issues are going to get reassociated (laughs) with each other, whether it's open or not. They'll probably assume that this is payback. But it's also a really good reminder, too, about how important it is to maintain goodwill with neighbors. Especially neighbors who are lending you something. Careful how many favors you ask for. And you don't want to draw too much on the goodwill of a neighbor if you don't have good neighborly exchanges in the bank that that they can 
think to themselves, boy, that I really appreciate that. Well, that's something I want to bring up is I think that the, the woman who's worried about her car, I think she could have handled asking about the cat differently and that that might have put her in a position where she's not risking the parking space and she's not offending a neighbor because unless she's actually seen the cat on the car and been able to address it in that moment where there's evidence of this problem going on, I think you have really little standing in a neighborhood that clearly has a lot of pets that are coming and going and that sort of thing. And I think that's that's really tough. And people are protective of their fur babies. But I don't get the sense that our listener, Cece, is being overprotective of her fur babies in any way, shape or form. No, me either. And I do sympathize with the neighbor. We've all seen those little yeah. muddy cat paw prints on the hood of a car, <laughs> totally. even if it's not scratching the paint. It, it, you know, if that was something that you were thinking, boy, every time I show this car, I'm going to have to walk out here with a rag and wipe it down. You might mention it to your neighbors, but I also think in a neighborhood where a lot of cats run free, that you might have a hard time establishing accountability and, and really <laughs> calling people out over it. You can mention it, but I don't know if there's a lot of follow-up that that neighbor is really going to be able to do. So the, the degree to which our conscientious cat owner replies is in some ways up to her. Well, totally. And let's face it, there's the phrase hurting cats for a reason. It's not easy. It's not easy to keep tabs on an animal that's coming and going from your home. And if they are indoor-outdoor cats, I've, I would not suggest to CZ that she has to keep her cats inside until those cars sell, you know? And I can understand the perspective of the neighbor. Gosh, my car already has a broken window and it's not clean on the inside and it's scratched. More scratches are just going to add to it. Frankly, I think probably the level of scratches you're going to get from a cat walking across it are really minimal compared to the amount of damage it looks like is on that car. But at the same time, not being able to actually see it, not being able to actually know we can't really judge that. <laughs> so I think the takeaway here is that our listener has done pretty much everything that we could offer as a suggestion in this moment, that you listen to your neighbor, you acknowledge her concerns. Uh, the offer to maybe look something up online to address it, I think, is uh, sort of a, a, a nice both deflect and gives you the option to, if you want, really be that good neighbor moving forward. Like above and, and beyond in my book. <laughs> if, like the Lent car space, there's no real cost to doing something, maybe you do something. Maybe it's as simple as... And I don't know because I haven't Google searched what keeps cats off warm car hoods. But um, if there's something simple or easy to do, maybe you do it. And if not, we've talked about how there's not really necessarily a way that the neighbor's going to check up on you over this. I'm, I'm not seeing a condo association getting involved right, here. Right, right. You could do the type of thing where you you decide in your own head you're going to give it a time limit. That if that car hasn't sold in two weeks, then you're going to ask that the the spot be freed up again for your use. You just you might give it that kind of a thing. Like, okay, you know what? If her car sells in the next three days, I'm just not going to address this issue. If it hasn't sold by Sunday, I'm going to deal with this issue. I love that. Give yourself a, a time frame, a window to get over the emotional response and then deal with the separate issue of that lent or shared parking space, however you want to address it. Conscientious cat lady in Ohio, thank you for this question. And you have kind of stumped us. And if any of our listeners have any ideas about um, either how to solve this problem or a good way to approach or deal with this neighbor, we would love to hear it. But there's more. What's that? More questions coming up, but first, a word from our sponsors. Here, let's try another trick. Father of the groom, father of the groom, father of the groom. This next question is about the father of the groom and his surprise extra guests. 
Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I've been listening to Awesome Etiquette for about a year now and appreciate all of the helpful advice you offer each week. I'm getting married next month, so many of your wedding-related tips have been especially useful during the planning process. I'm writing because of a wedding invite issue we're experiencing and was hoping you could offer some help. We recently heard that my fiancé's father has been inviting people to our wedding without asking us for permission to do so. None of the people he's apparently invited have contacted us about the invitation. My fiancé and I are angry he has allegedly done this and are frankly a bit mystified as to why my future father-in-law thought it was his place to invite people to our wedding without notifying us. Not only do his actions seem rude to us, but... Our venue has limited space, so we're only inviting people who are close family and friends, and we barely know the people he's invited. Plus, my father-in-law-to-be has not offered to contribute financially to our wedding and did not ask earlier in the planning process if he could invite certain people to our wedding. If he had, we might have been open to it. Another complication is that my fiancé has sometimes had a challenging relationship with his father, who has been divorced from his mother since my fiancé was young. We would really appreciate any advice you could offer about how best to handle this situation. Thanks so much, Katie. P.S. Congrats to Dan for being a daddy-to-be. How exciting! Katie, I want to reflect that congratulations right back to you. Congratulations on your coming nuptials. That is so spectacular. And thank you for sharing with us and for listening to the podcast and gleaning what little tips you can. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really tough situation. I yeah. I am of two minds. Okay. But I think the first thing that I would suggest, because this is a really serious breach of etiquette yeah. and it, it could result in a, a situation that is so less than ideal that you... <laughs> I I think that you're in good shape addressing it immediately and trying to head this one off at the pass. And I would do that by talking to your father-in-law, to your husband's father, and asking him to try to rectify this situation. You can explain that you simply do not have enough space at the wedding venue for the people that he's invited, that if you had talked about it sooner, everything that you said in the question, that you would have been happy to reach some sort of accommodation so that a few of the people that really mattered to him maybe could have come, if that was even possible. Possible, but that at this stage of the game, without that kind of warning or notice, you simply haven't accounted for it. You haven't planned for it. And this is a discussion that that can be approached in a really practical way. We often say that practicality is the heart of good etiquette. And um, the practical problem here of having a venue that doesn't have enough space or room for everybody that's going to show up is something that, that you really want to address as soon as possible. Because you don't know these people, because you weren't the one who made that mistake, you have to talk to the person who did about what they can do to rectify it. And you can bring some suggestions to that discussion. You can have some ideas about ways that he might approach it. But I would also be prepared to hear his ideas about how he might approach it because clearly he is operating from a slight, with a slightly different social code than you a are. Pers- a different perspective. Different perspective. And there might be a solution that he's aware of or could think of in the situation that, that is different than yours but might address the practical problem of there are just too many people invited and you haven't planned for it. I want to back this up a bit, and I want to go back to this this line here that I'm reading that says, my fiancé and I are angry he has supposedly done this. And I think that, Katie, that word supposedly gives you your in, because you're not 100% sure about it, so it's time to ask the question. And either together you can ask it, or if it's better for just your fiancé to be addressing his father, he can broach that with his father and say, 
Dad, I wanted to check in with you because we are dealing with a venue that has limited space. And I think Dan is absolutely right. You have literally something that they can't argue with. I mean, it's a it's a thing out there that allows it to not be. I don't want your friends at my wedding. It's no, we actually can't accommodate your friends at this wedding. And I think that's really important because it takes a little of the personal out of it. I loved Dan's language of if we had talked about this earlier, we might have been able to make some adjustments. But unfortunately, at this stage of the game, we have to stick to the guest list we had planned for. Now, I also think that what this is going to do, if if it's true that your future father-in-law has been inviting people on his own, he's going to go into a bit of a panic in his brain, probably, of, oh, my gosh, well, what position am I now in? Because, you know, my son and future daughter-in-law aren't going to let these people come to the wedding and I've invited them. I mean, he's in a terrible position and he's put himself there. But I think you can help him out by having some sample language ready to go and say, you know, I thought about that and I want to give you some sample language to be able to talk to these guests. And you could say something really simple, like suggest that he say something really simple, like, Carol, I'm so sorry, but I was confused and thought that I was able to extend invitations to the wedding to my friends. Apparently, the venue is small and Katie and Greg had to make a tight guest list. I'm so sorry. I should have checked with them first. I hope you understand. It just simply... That made me feel better. Did it? Okay. <laughs> it did. Because I was like, you know, it's still really hard that you are un- you are forcing someone to have to uninvite people to a wedding, and that's hard. That is hard. And you, Katie, never should have been put in that position in the first place. But now that it's there, we also have to recognize that we have to let these guests down gently, and we have to help your father, future father-in-law have a way to do that. So I think providing him with language, um, maybe even saying you'd be happy to talk to the people with him and say you're so sorry, it's not your apology to be making, but it is it's a, a way to help smooth. You said this isn't always a great relationship between father and son. So any way that you can help smooth what's going to be a slightly awkward conversation, I think that it'll help him feel supported in solving this as opposed to feeling like he's done a bad thing and he has to be punished and go put his tail between his legs and tell these people they're not invited. I like it. <laughs> I also would really encourage you to keep the focus for this particular awkward or difficult conversation on the the specifics of the situation at hand. Anything that you can do to mentally prepare yourself to not get into the larger issues that your fiancé has had with his father, I think is really key because there is, as, as Lizzie says, the possibility, maybe even the likelihood that as he starts to feel the difficulty of the situation or the position that he's in, that his response might be emotional, might not be the best response, might be the kind of response that you're used to. And a little bit of mental preparation is going to help you keep that high ground and hold to your bottom line. Another thought that I would share is that while it's certainly a consideration who's paid for a wedding, who gets to participate in developing that guest list, that it's absolutely a courtesy to ask parents who are helping to pay for a wedding um, for their input on a guest list, uh, not just appropriate but advisable, that I wouldn't necessarily bring that up in response to this mistake or this error, that I think it's a really good thing for you to have in mind in terms of your thinking about your accountability to your future father-in-law. I don't think it's going to serve you well in this particular conversation. Yeah, so leave the money out of it for this part. I want to jump into the future. Yeah. I want to jump to the wedding day. Yeah. (laughs) And I really want to encourage you to have a, a little bit of a backup plan in place just in case 
any unexpected guests arrive in case your future father-in-law turns out to be as bad at uninviting as he was at inviting in the first place. And no matter how good the sample language you've provided and how agreeable he has been. that He might not do it. He might say he's going to and then not. In the game of telephone that is life, that message does not get to the person on the other end the way that we initially intend it and people show up that and it doesn't need to be anything major, but just an emergency contingency bottom line backup plan, an extra chair or two um, or or an awareness from your wedding planner or ushers that this might happen. And just to be really clear with people about the people on the guest list, having their reserved seats, whatever it is that, that you have a contingency plan in place, because an ounce of prevention, as we say on this show all the time, is worth a pound of cure. We are so excited for you. Lizzie Post and I love weddings, and we wish you the best on your wedding day. Our next question is titled, Appropriate Accommodation. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I will be hosting a casual block party style event to celebrate the fall season with my neighbors. There are two people on my street with mobility impairments, and I can see that they have permanently altered their houses to allow for ease of entry and exit. I am so stuck on how to proceed. On the one hand, it is important to me that they know I am considering their comfort in my yard and home. But on the other, I don't want to offend them by making an assumption about what type of accommodation, if any, they might need. I am comfortable asking about how I might be a better host in so many less loaded situations. But I don't want to imply that extending them an invitation entitles me to what they might consider very private information. I must add that while we are not new to the street, We've not made the best effort to get to know everyone, so this will be our first interaction beyond waves and hellos in and out of the neighborhood. Because of the informal nature of the event, I hadn't planned on requesting RSVPs. Should I change my tack to give them an easy opportunity to share this information with me if they choose? Should I ask them directly? Should I move forward as planned and trust they will reach out if needed? I'd hate for them to choose not to attend out of concern that it's too much hassle but they may not be interested in coming at all and feel pressure if I single them out. Am I overthinking this? Sincerely, not a nosy neighbor. Not a nosy neighbor. I think you're good to be thoughtful and considering, and I think especially without having requested RSVPs, that it is a little bit tougher because someone might not be calling to say, yes, I'm coming, which then allows you to say, hey, is there anything I can do to just make it easier for you to get around or anything like that at the party? I understand that you're now in a position where they might be coming and you might not know that they're coming and that that does cause you to have to make an extra step to then ask questions about accessibility and that that might feel a little a little bit uncomfortable. But I want to remind you that both of these guests navigate the world on a daily basis and they navigate a world that isn't always as accommodating to them as you would hope it would be. And so to understand that this isn't the first party invitation they've had to accept, especially one without an RSVP. So breathe a little bit easier just knowing that these are people who are just like you in the world figuring out how best to let people know. Just the same way that you might not know someone has an allergy and you might not have given them an RSVP to a party and they, when they call, have to say, hey, I just want you to know I have an airborne allergy that that really could cause a problem and I just wanted to make sure that it would be safe for me to attend the party, something like that. They'll know to speak up if there's something that they need or need to ask about. I really like the way you're prepared to be a good host for all of your guests, whatever their needs. And I think that 
keeping a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of willingness to respond to what your guests bring to your door, whatever it is, is an important part of being a good host. And I, I, I see and I feel that spirit in the way that you've approached this question. And I really agree with my cousin Lizzie that you you don't need to worry too much about it. This uh, that, that worry is what starts to make this a loaded question in some ways. And the more you can put your own mind at ease, the more you can diffuse that tension for yourself, the easier it's going to be to stay flexible and gracious, however the back and forth of that communication proceeds. I think you've done a great job issuing the invitation. You don't need the RSVP. I wouldn't insert it to prompt anybody. I think that you've hit your your marks as a host. And at this point, I think that you remind yourself to be ready for whatever happens and that you're prepared to respond to your guests whatever they request of you as a host. Not a nosy neighbor. You you say in your question that you haven't done the things, you haven't met your neighbors. This is it. This is the moment. You're meeting them. You're doing the thing. And this is part of getting to know your neighborhood. We wish you the best of luck. Have a great time. Have a great party. And we hope that's the beginning of many long friendships. Our next question is a voicemail that was titled, Too, Too Much. My problem is that my father, my sister, and her younger daughter are coming always to Miami, Florida for vacation, and they stay in my house for a good two months of the vacation time. I need a way to tell them that my house is not a vacation place. It's my home, and I need my space. My husband needs his space, and I just don't know how to tell my family that it's too much. Two two months is too much for them to stay at the house for the summer. Thank you. Anonymous, I completely agree. Two months is too much. And you are well within your right to express this even to very close family like a father and a sister and a niece. And I think that the best way to do that is to just be honest and have the conversation and say, Dad, I love so much when you come to visit. However... John and I really aren't in a position right now where it's easy for us to accommodate a guest for two whole months. I would love to invite you to come for the weeks of and then list some dates or I'd love to invite you for two weeks. I would love to invite you and Kelly and our little niece for two weeks. (laughs) Whatever the amount of time that's okay for you, invite them for that amount of time and say, so let's pick two weeks during the summer that you could come and we could have a really nice visit for I can also recommend places for you to stay after that if you still want to travel around Florida or enjoy Miami. Right? Um, Yes. I'm sitting here blown away at how well you handled that. Those were the perfect sample scripts. This is not an uncommon problem. People that have vacation homes, people that live in places that are vacation destinations or even just really nice places to visit or even people that are awesome (laughs) and whose families (laughs) love them. Yes. Deal with this. This is not an uncommon etiquette situation. And what I really like is the way Lizzie's answer focused on the positive, not the negative. It's not about the time you're denying them. (laughs) It's not about the moment of kicking them out. It's about inviting them to join you for those two weeks. And if they really love visiting and they want to stay for the whole summer, these are some other options that you might be interested in. If those other options aren't viable, it's so good to see you for those two weeks. I think you can leave it at that. We really hope this helps and that you're able to enjoy your home next summer as well. 
Thank you for your questions. Don't forget to send us updates and comments. You can submit your question, update, or comment to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or feel free to leave us a voicemail at 802-866-0860. We do so love the sound of your voice. And you can hit us up on social media. Just remember to use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want your question or comment on the show. You see what I mean about putting your best foot forward? Now it's time for our feedback section, where we get to hear what you think about what we say on Awesome Etiquette. We are so curious, and so is our producer, Chris Roberts, who's here to share some of your feedback with all of us. Hey, Chris. Hello there, Lizzie and Dan. So you may remember Jess, who had a question about handshake etiquette in interview situations back in episode 96. Yes. She was thrilled that you answered her question, by the way, and Jess writes... As for how your advice worked out, although I didn't get your answer until after my interview with the committee, it went exactly as you had advised. It was an interview for a teaching position, and the principal led the greeting with a handshake and then introduced me to the other teachers who did not initiate a handshake, but who I greeted one by one as the principal introduced them. As I left, the principal walked me out, and we had a goodbye shake. No awkwardness to be found." I will remember your advice whenever I am navigating a similar situation. Thank you so much, Jess. That is a great outcome, and it turns out that you both were handshake prognosticators. (laughs) I was just, this is what I love is when someone actually can write in and tell us how the situation went. And even if our advice didn't get there in a timely manner, I'm so grateful that the situation was easy to understand, easy to read, and that Jess could focus on her interview. And Jess, we hope you got the job. That really would be a great outcome. Yes, indeed. And who can forget Motormouth from episode 104, who wanted to learn how to be less dominant in casual conversations and a better listener? And we can all relate to that. I'm telling you, (laughs) I am so there. We heard from Cody, who appreciated your advice and wanted to add another dimension to think about, and that's body language. Cody has done research on the subject and studied American Sign Language as well and says... So when I want to be a good listener, I focus on the nonverbal signals I'm sending. I orient my whole body toward the speaker, and if I cross my legs, it's toward them. I do not cross my arms, as that can often be construed as non-receptive. And if I want to appear open to an idea or situation, I will casually place or gesture with my hands in a way that they are palm up, which is an indicator of innocence, openness, and non-aggression. Also, controlling fidgety movements helps someone appear more present. These are just some basic things, and there are many more ways you can position yourself to be received as a good listener. The best part about placing yourself in a focused and receptive state, I find, is that it actually does make it easier to pay attention and listen. I hope this helps. Cody. It definitely helps me. Great. It sure does. That is some really good advice. 
I'm reminded of two things. One, I want to address the advice that you give in this question about body language because it's so good about your your posture indicating to people how open you are. I love that idea of showing your palms. That's a, a, a new one to me. I hadn't heard it expressed like that. But something I often tell audiences is that anything that inwardly rotates your shoulders or hips turns you off to the world. So crossing your arms in front of your body inwardly rotates your shoulders. But I, I don't have a gesture that I give people that shows what an open shoulder rotation would look like. And that showing your palms really is, is the beginning of that action of, of outward rotation and the opening of the shoulders. That is such sound advice. I plan on adopting it. And that reminds me of the second point. Lizzie Post and I are really fortunate. We're going to attend a conference in a few weeks. It's a participant-led conference. And the idea behind it is that anytime you get a group of, of 20 or more people together who have interest in a subject, they know more about that subject than any expert that you could bring to talk about it. That there is a wisdom in crowds, there is a wisdom in collective knowledge, and you've really brought your wisdom to our discussion today. And I, I appreciate it so much. It's, it's one thing that we love about the feedback section. We get to learn as well. So um, thank you for being part of our expert community. about not doing the right thing. It's time for the Postscript segment of the show where we explore the exciting nuance of a single piece of etiquette. And today we are bringing it back to great-great-grandmama and uh, taking a page out of Emily Post's etiquette. Dan, what have you got? Well, I want to acknowledge the folks that have asked for a return to the traditional in the Postscript, that we've had uh, several requests for a return to some really traditional etiquette concepts. And I thought that I would share a little something today from the very end of Emily Post's original etiquette book, the 1922 edition, which is one of the places I go for inspiration about traditional etiquette. This concluding thought from Emily is about the growth of good taste in America. Good taste or bad is revealed in everything we are, do, or have. Our speech, manners, dress, and household goods, and even our friends, are evidence of the propriety of our taste. And all of these have been the subject of this book. Rules of etiquette are nothing more than signposts by which we are guided to the goal of good taste. Whether we Americans are drifting toward or from finer perceptions, both mental and spiritual, is too profound a subject to be taken up except on a broader scope than that of the present volume. Yet it is a commonplace remark that older people invariably feel that the younger generation is speeding swiftly on the road to perdition. But whether the present younger generation is really any nearer to that frightful end than any previous one is a question that we, of the present older generation, are scarcely qualified to answer. To be sure, manners seem to have grown lax, and many of the amenities apparently have vanished. But do these things merely seem to us because young men of fashion do not pay party calls nowadays, and the young women of fashion is informal? It is difficult to maintain that youth today is so very different from what it has been in other periods of the country's history, especially as the capriciousness of beauty, the heartlessness and carelessness of youth, are charges of too speciously bromidic flavor to carry conviction. (laughs) 
I want to take this moment to acknowledge how much I love my great-great-grandmother. I feel like I get to know her better and better as we hear clips of her radio shows and as I spend more time with her writing. I love her awareness back in 1922 of the, the periodicity of etiquette, of the way fashions come and go, of the way manners rise and fall, and the perception that manners are in a state of decline being one that is perpetual in our country and that despite how how easy it might be to start to feel like the younger generation is lost or at sea, that really it's a condition of the older generation that they might not have the information to fully assess all of the characteristics that are emerging in that younger generation that are admirable as well. I offer this as a, a little bit of a comment on the desire for old-fashioned etiquette. And I like to look back at that old-fashioned etiquette, in fact, one of the standards of old-fashioned etiquette, and see that even in those days and times, people had a certain nostalgia for the etiquette and the fashions that preceded their time. We will continue to investigate some of these etiquettes from the mid-20th century because I do think that they are illuminating. And I think this is one example of that. It's time for our etiquette salute, and we're calling all salutes. We want to hear from you. Who's making a difference in your life? Where do you see good etiquette exhibited? Please feel free to send your salutes to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, and we can actually have you speak your own salute to us, which we love more than anything. Just feel free to give us a call and leave that message at 802-866-0860. And speaking of making a difference, this week's salute comes from Shauna, who was fortunate to have had a wonderful role model in her life. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thanks for such a wonderful podcast. I absolutely love it. My etiquette salute is going out to my late grandmother. She was the Miss Manners of the family. She was the beacon that everyone would look to when they had any questions on how to behave or how to act. One thing in particular that stands out to me is when we were cleaning out her home after she passed away, we found in her freezer a package wrapped in tinfoil with a post-it note on it. The post-it note said, for unexpected company and the date that it was made, and it happened to be banana bread. And that just goes to show the type of person that she was. She always thought of other people enough to have banana bread frozen and ready to go in case she had unexpected company to make sure that everyone felt welcome. So a big salute to my grandmother. She was always the best. And memories like that just stick with me forever. What a sweet salute. I love that. I think so, too. It's such a nice feeling. I get such a sweet grandmotherly feel just hearing about that banana bread. I I can picture the way that it made people feel when she produced that as part of a visit, as part of a welcome. Well, you know, that also, it goes back to the idea that real hosts are always prepared. There's just those people. And whether it's your own homemade banana bread or it's something that you keep on hand that's store-bought, it really doesn't matter. It's the thought that counts. It's that thought of someone who who said, oh, a drop-by visitor. Back, drop-by visitors, like, I feel like, at least in in our area, they don't happen that often. But, boy, how amazing if you did swing by somebody's house to talk to them for a minute or just to say hi and 
they have a lovely cup of tea and a slice of banana bread or they offer you a beverage and a cracker, whatever just, it is. Yeah, exactly. Like whatever it is. It's just, hey, I'm ready for people to be over here. I'm proud of my home. I'm proud of being able to let someone in for a minute and chat. And can I take care of you? Can is there I something I can do May for I, you? Is yeah. there something about your comfort that I could attend to and and that would be a delight for me? I love it. Thank you, Shauna, for this most excellent etiquette salute. Well, now, wasn't that better? Look at the effect of a little politeness. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your questions, comments, and salutes to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can reach us at 802-866-0860. On Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. You can help us out if you love the show. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Our theme music was composed and performed by Bob Wagner, and our show is produced by Chris Roberts. 